Okay, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 27. We are in the second last chapter of Acts today, and we'll be completing the book after almost a year and a half next week. Amen? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's really good. Anyone who's new here, just to let you know, this is kind of a special service. We don't normally have two presentations back to back, but we are so thankful to hear amazing opportunities for both giving in Columbia, but also uh, here through Operation Christmas Child. And if you're part of the youth, you will be uh, spearheading a lot of this with Pastor Tyler. But today in Acts chapter 27, the second last chapter of the book of Acts, what we're going to see today is that in the face of life's storms, be it sickness, hardship, hurts, pains, that we have an anchor that we can hold on to, that we are anchored to. And that anchor is the sovereignty of God. That through it all, even in the chaos, the chaos of life, the ups and downs, God is in control of the situation. Do you believe that? And he is working everything out for good. And that should bring us as believers in Christ Jesus a great deal of peace. Last week in Acts chapter 26, we witnessed Paul's trial before King Agrippa. And now this week, we see Paul's journey beginning to Rome. He's not going to make it to Rome in Acts chapter 27. He's going to get stuck on an island called Malta. And next week, we'll see the completion of of Jesus' prophecy, his words to him that he would stand before Caesar. So I'm going to paraphrase the first 12 verses for you, and then we're going to pick up in verse 13 and then read the entirety of the rest of the chapter. So verses 1 to 12 details for us Paul's journey to Rome by boat. He's in first the smaller boat that would have to stay closer to docks and dock at all the ports. And we also see in this verse that Paul was not alone. He was accompanied by Aristarchus and Luke, uh, as Luke is writing in first uh, person. This is some of the we passages that theologians refer to. Uh, Luke was there as he's writing this. He's not retelling the story. They eventually switch to a bigger boat that could go faster. But Paul, in verse 9, warns not to continue on to the port in Phoenix because they were trying to get there because they're traveling in about October. They want to beat the winter. And the port of Fair Havens, despite the name, was not the best place to spend winter. Okay, So they're trying to get on going. But Paul says, you shouldn't go. We're going to have trouble. But they ignore him. And we see that they're traveling behind around the atonement time, which is mid-October, actually right around today's date, uh, surprisingly. Uh, But the best time to travel these waters would be spring or summer, and Paul knows this. But they didn't listen to Paul, and he continued on, and that's where we pick up our reading today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick up in verse 13. We're going to walk through the rest of the chapter, and then I will make some few observations for you. It should be, oh, it's already there. Okay. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete. Close to the shore, but soon a a tempestuous wind called a nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kata. We managed with difficulty and secured the ship's boat. 
After hoisting it up, they used support to undergrid the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground and, and the surtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was la at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete uh, and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further, they took another sounding and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down their anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boats into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, uh, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense, and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks... To God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they had lightened the ship, throwing out all the weed into the sea. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail in the wind, and they made the beach. By striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The sailors planned to kill all the prisoners, lest any should swim and escape. But the centurion wished to save Paul and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to land. Okay, a lot of reading. And what we have in front of us today is all the details about Paul's journey. And we're sitting here, maybe you're like me, you're sitting here and you're wondering, well, what could be more exciting and practical to my life today about a ship and a trip to Caesarea, from Caesarea to Malta, right? Isn't this the most practical chunk of scripture you've ever read? And there's a certain temptation to approach these texts the same way that we approach some of the Old Testament texts when you get all these genealogies and all these really big names that I couldn't even dream about pronouncing. And my wife said no about naming our first son for some reason. But uh, we do all, what, what do we do with a text like this? 
when we're reading our Bible and our, and our yearly plans and we come across texts like Acts chapter 27, what do we do with this? And the answer is, is that we treat this text the same way that we treat any other text of Scripture. We have to come to it with this pretense, that it is God-breathed. That this is the inspired word of God to us. We believe that it's profitable for correction or for rebuke or for training. We believe that this text is able to make us wise unto salvation. And these are the things that is promised to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as always, we want to read our text in context. The book of Acts, as many of you may know, and maybe you've forgotten because it's been almost a year and a half, the book of Acts is written by Luke, and it's the second part to his gospel, the gospel of Luke. So gospel of Luke is part one. The book of Acts is part two. They're meant to be read together. And if you want to understand Acts, you have to understand Luke. And Luke introduces his gospel, and he gives us his mission behind his writing and his goal, which is found in Luke 1, 4. And this is important to us to understand what we're reading today. He says that you may have certainty, certainty, under, well, you're not there, but if you're there, underline that or write that down, concerning the things that you've been taught. Certainty. Luke doesn't just want you to be taught so you have all this head knowledge. He wants you to have certainty that the things you have been taught are true. They're not just fairy tales. They're not just great poems that you can recite to one another to encourage each other when life is hard. This is true. It's interesting that Luke is writing this, and when he writes this, he's understanding that there are going to be people who are reading his work that do not have certainty. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here, you've been exploring Christianity, or you've been in it for a while, but you still have some doubts. You still have some uncertainties about what is in these two leather flaps. And you have these questions, and there's lots of questions, even doubts, and Paul's, or sorry, Luke's writing so that you might have certainty with what's lying before you today. And there's a lot of questions and doubts, and Luke has done the hard work of researching all of these events and all of these travels and stories so that we would have certainty, knowing that the Bible is true. Certainty is the goal of Luke, and certainty is my goal for you, and it should be your goal for yourself as well. But in order for us to get there, we have to first be honest with ourselves, that we might have questions that when we consider the data that Luke is putting before us. So before we dive into the meat of this text, I want to ask you this question. Can you think, you can think about this now, you can th answer it now, or you can think about it later, but what are the things or the issues in your life and questions that you might have that you're struggling with right now? What are the things in Scripture, the things that are still baffling to you, that you're still struggling with to come to terms with? Or here's an easier way. What are the things right now that are keeping you from certainty in God's Word? What are those things? Those issues and those questions matter. Maybe you grew up in a church that told you don't ask questions. You know, just listen to what the pastor says. Please don't just use me as your final authority. You'll be horribly off. Okay, use the scripture. Um, but maybe you were raised that. I was raised that way. You can't ask those questions. Just we believe that because we're Christian. Well, that's not good enough for me. So these questions matter. And more likely or not, you're not the first person to have these questions or or these issues. And know that the questions you have are fine, and they're good, and they're a gift from God to drive you deeper in your understanding. What do you do when you have questions? Well, we study. When you're confused, what do you do? You go and try to search out and find clarity. You investigate. 
Or maybe you take the lazy approach, you type it into Google and take the first Wikipedia answer. I don't know. Now, to each their own, but I would suggest going a little deeper than Wikipedia. But in all seriousness, we study and we investigate so that we might have a greater understanding of Scripture. So we can arrive at the place of Luke's target, which is certainty. So ask yourself, what do you need to spend time in this week with God thinking about studying and asking questions about to gain certainty? Because what we see with Luke's intent is what it communicates to us is that the Bible is meant to be understood. It's not some high wisdom book that we're just like, well, that's really spiritual, but I have no clue what that means. We're meant to understand this book. So don't be embarrassed by not knowing something, even if it's simple. Come and ask those questions. Research those questions. We'll gladly help you think through those questions. And if you have them, don't ignore them. Lean into them because those questions matter. And Luke wants us to have certainty when we consider a chapter like Acts 27. It seems as though there are three elements in these verses that I want us to consider that give us certainty. These are the three anchors that we have within any storm of life. The first one is certainty in God's word. The second one is certainty in God's plan. And the third one is certainty in God's promise. So let's move through those. Starting with the first one. It seems at least initially impractical to us that Luke goes into such grave detail of this journey. Couldn't Luke have just easily said, well, Paul got on a ship, he left Caesarea, he landed in Malta. Could he have said that and be true? Yes. A hundred percent he could have said that and you wouldn't have to listen to me read for three minutes straight, right? It would have been a lot easier today. But Luke doesn't do that. Luke tells us so much more. He tells us where the ships come from, which ports they stopped in. He tells us which routes they took and 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 why they went a particular way. He tells us about weather patterns and storms and attempted escape and safety boats. He tells us about the threat of prisoners being killed out of the fear of losing them. He tells us of the number of people who were on the ship. He says there were 276 people on it. He could have just said, hey, we're on a big boat with lots of people, right? Nobody says those 276, not 75, not 78, 76, right? The detail that Luke shares about sailing ports, interactions on the boat, the weather, the travel, all of those are detailed and are considered to be historically unparalleled in terms of their specificity. Thomas Walker commenting on this, he says that there was so much... Oh, I don't have that on there, sorry. There is so much detailed record of the working, there has never been so much detailed record of a working ancient ship in the whole of classical literature. Nothing holds a match to his detail from that time. It's very fascinating, but you're probably going, okay, great, Aaron, you're just geeking out over some theology nerd stuff. What does this have to do with me? It's 2022. I'm not up at night worried and anxious over if Paul had the proper understanding of a ship. That's not a problem that I face every day, right? I have other issues that hit me like waves at nighttime. So why does this matter? Friends, it matters immensely. Because it demonstrates the truth of Luke's writing. Luke is telling us about a real journey, a real ship, real people, real struggles, and real weather. He is telling us about a real story. In other words, Luke is telling us the truth. And that is incredibly important for us to consider. 
It used to be that critics of the Bible would say, well, you can't trust all the details pertaining to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection because the Bible is inaccurate on other areas like geography or, or events in world history. That's what they would argue against the Bible. And because they would claim those events were inaccurate, they would deduce that you can't rightly then in good faith trust all the other accounts of Scripture, especially those pertaining to Jesus and his salvation. They would say, it, because it was inaccurate in geography, it is also inaccurate in theology. But here's what happened. Every bit of research that has been done on the Bible has only served to confirm what the Bible has said. Guess what? The geography's right, the history's right, and the stories are right and true. And as we are able to observe and confirm these things, it only increases our confidence in what Scripture says and tells us. This is so important for us to know. Luke is not making up the story. And because of that, we can rightly say the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is not just meant to be a story that inspires us if it happened or not. Just how it makes me feel, the idea of Jesus rising. We can rightly say that's not true. The story of Jesus is a true story. The story of Jesus is true. He was actually born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus was actually crucified on a Roman cross. And Jesus actually rised on the third day, according to Scripture, for our salvation. It's true. Those facts are as real and true as the details that Luke has put in Acts 27. Do you see how this all goes together? The Bible is the true word of God. The true word of the true God. It is God-breathed. The Greek word is theonoustos. It is exhaled from God. It is part of him and it comes from him and it's alive and active. It is God-breathed and Holy Spirit inspired. When you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and if you're saved, you do, you will have illumination upon the text because it's God's word. The scriptures are without error and are the final authority on all matters of life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the word of God is true? Do you believe that this is the final word and the final authority in all things? Friends, read your word. Trust your word. Submit to your word and know the word. That's both this word and the word. Amen, Jesus. And be certain that it is God's word, every last bit of it. Yes, even the genealogies. Which leads us to the second point, which is God's plan. My slideshow must be out of order. If you guys could follow along somehow. Certainty in God's plan. What I want you to see in this text today is that God has a plan. But not just in this text, but throughout the entirety of Paul's life as it has been recorded for us in the book of Acts. We know that in Acts chapter 9, Paul was confronted by the resurrected Lord and he was saved. And when Paul was saved, we see that God had a plan. And this plan was not just when and where and how God was going to save Paul. Rather, it was a plan for all of Paul's life. And after his encounter with the resurrected Lord, he gets sent to a guy named Ananias. And, and Ananias was a Christian who was meant to explain what has happened to him, to make sense of everything. And Jesus shares with Ananias what, Paul, what the plan on Paul's life was, that he was going to bring Christ's name before Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. And last week, we used that same verse, and we highlighted 
at kings as he stood before King Agrippa. But this week, I just want you to realize that God has a plan. And that's what we see. He has a plan. God God didn't just save Paul and go, well, what are we going to do now? We saved the greatest threat to the church. Now what? No, he knew what he wanted Paul to do. Paul is going to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, just like Samaritan Purse is doing, and just like so many other ministries that have made this their duty to bring Christ to the nations. Amen? And that was the plan. Acts chapter 9, we, learn, we don't learn anything about how this plan is going to go out, how it's all going to pan out, but now in Acts 27, we see how it's all going. Actually, really, from Acts 10 to about 28, we see all the details of God's plan for Paul's life uh, unfolding. How God had brought him and prepared him and used him on this journey of bringing the gospel to the nation, including to the Jews and the rulers. If Paul is going to testify before the highest courts in the land, which is Caesar's, then at some point, Paul is going to have to go to Rome, right? He's not just going to appear there out of nowhere. He's got to take a boat. He's got to get on a boat. He's got to go to Rome. And this is all part of God's plan. And we need to realize that. But I want us to step back for a moment and just acknowledge with me that life would have been so much easier for Paul if he just didn't follow God's plan. Now, before you go, well, it would actually be harder. Yes, I know, I know. But re- just, just humor me for a moment. Paul sticking to God's plan made things incredibly difficult for Paul. Agrippa actually acknowledged this at the end of chapter 26 last week when he said, uh, and Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Do you know what he's saying? Paul was brought before trial. Every trial he's been brought before, what was the ruling? He's innocent. He had an innocent. And and at this point, he could have just said, well, great, I'm innocent. Leave me alone, boys. I'm going back to my work. I'm going to go preach the gospel back on the streets. You guys can just continue to hate me. Haters are going to hate, right? Don't come at me. But Paul didn't do that. He appealed to Caesar. And Agrippa says, you just made life so much harder for you because you just won't stop. This could have all gone away quietly. We could have brushed it all under the mat, but you just couldn't stop because that wasn't God's plan for Paul's life. Proclaiming the gospel, as we saw when Jesus stood beside him in prison, was that he was to stand before Caesar in Rome and proclaim Christ there just like he did in all the other contexts that we've read about in Acts. Proclaiming the gospel to the highest authority was Paul's, God's plan for Paul's life. And he sticks to it even when life is threatened. Even when storms threaten to destroy the boat. Even when sailors try to escape on lifeboats. Even when, and this would include Paul, all the prisoners were about to be executed. Paul sticks to the plan. Not because the plan makes sense. Did you hear that? Paul stuck to the plan. Not because it made sense, but because it was God's plan for Paul's life. And God has a plan. And sometimes this plan in your life involves great joy. It involves laughter, prosperity, victory, feasting, and celebration. And we really like those times, right? Maybe you don't. Do you like those times? Okay, you are awake. Okay, good. Sometimes that plan also, though, involves great pain and great sorrow and great suffering and deep despair. And I know that many of you have been walking through these difficult times because you've talked with me and I've sat with you in these difficult seasons and we've all been there. And in these moments of great despair, 
It's a massive struggle. It's a struggle to sit back and look at this and somehow believe that somehow this is all part of God's plan. When we suffer, we wonder, how can this be? When God does something that we think is good, we automatically thank him. Oh, yes, I praise you, God. I thank you, God. But when things are difficult, we wonder, what are you doing, God? What are you, what's happening to me? Why are you allowing this to happen? And if we go through a prolonged time of suffering, like many of you have been, you wonder at times, is this consistent with God's goodness and love? If you're truly a God of love, if you're truly a God of grace, then why is this happening to one of your servants? And it will drive you mad. But we have to remember it's part of God's plan. It's our only hope. Hear this? It's our only hope that it's part of God's plan. I was raised on Looney Tune theology that said God wasn't sovereign. That everything happened to you and God's sitting up in heaven just as surprised as you were. What hope is that? God is sovereign. And he is using everything, both good and bad, in your life and working it out for eternal glory, for your good. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 3.1, we read that God from all eternity did, by most and wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now, you might push back on me and say, well, you're using the Westminster Confession. Yeah, those are Presbyterians. They like bourbon and scotch. Of course they're going to write something that dark, right? <laughs> well, let's just look at the Baptist Confession of Faith. 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, also 3.1. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass whatsoever comes to pass all of it the charges the arrest the plots against Paul the voyage the storm the shipwreck all of that is somehow a part of God's plan your pain your despair your rejection your loneliness your hurt your bad doctor's reports your surgeries your 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 hardships in life are all somehow a part of God's plan. The things that you have been through, the things you will go through, are somehow a part of God's plan. Even the painful stuff, even the loss and sorrow and sadness, where does this all fit into God's plan, we might ask. And what I would encourage you to do is when we have those questions, we need to look to the cross. The cross was the worst thing, the crucifixion of Christ was the worst thing to ever happen in, on the planet, in all of history. The worst thing ever. Yet through it, the most beautiful reality is produced, which is the reconciliation between God and humankind. Your salvation. My salvation. So although we know that about the crucifixion, the disciples, before the resurrection, they were scared. They believed Jesus to be God, and now he's dead. Uh-oh, now what do we do? I gave up everything to follow this guy, and now he's dead? Are you kidding me? They're scared. They're hiding. But after the resurrection of Christ, after he rose, what happened? It all made sense. 
Friends, just like the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, the seasons of darkness, the pain in your life, the tragedy that has happened or may happen and that you will walk through will only make sense to you on the other side of resurrection. There might be glimpses of it now in this life, but when we stand face to face with our Savior, when he wipes personally every tear from your eyes, when you no longer see dimly but you see clearly, it will all make sense. And in fact, it will not only make sense, it will be glorious. In glory, we won't look at the pain that we have endured and go, well, now I understand. That's great. In Christ, we will look at all the pain we endured and get this. We will say amen. Thank you, Lord. Because I didn't see it the way you did. How can we know that? Well, because lastly, as I close, oh, I'm out of order. That's right. Because of God's promise. In verse 23, it says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. How did, God, or how did Paul know that the storm was not his end? How did he know that the shipwreck would not be the end of his story? How does he know these things? Because he knows God's promise. He knew that God promised And it was God's word. And God had told him, friends, God's promise, God's word, at the end of the day, is all we have. His promise is all we have. And it's all we need. It's enough. God has given us his word. God has promised you that he'll never leave you or forsake you. How do we know that? Because it's in his word that all things, not some things, but all things will work out for good. God has promised you that no weapon fashioned or formed against you will succeed or prosper. God has promised you that everything is yours in Christ Jesus. God has promised you that if you trust in his son, you will be forgiven of your sins and saved. He has promised you eternal life and glory in Christ. He has promised us all these things and more. And why do we trust him? Because he's given us His word. He has given us his word. He has given us his son. We trust him because Christ who had died in our place was given for us. We trust him because Christ who was given for us was raised on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of the father, ruling and reigning. We trust his word, his promise and his plan because he has given us Jesus. All of you this morning are trusting in someone. You're either trusting in Christ or you're trusting in something else. All of you are trusting in something and submitting yourself to some authority outside of yourself. It's either Christ or lies. All of you are reading a text. It's either the word or it's the mantras and social liturgies of our world. And when we trust these and we conform to these things, what they're teaching is what we'll be like. I'm here to tell you that it's only Christ who is trustworthy. It's only Christ whom you should put your trust in. Only Christ is worthy of your trust and conformity in this world, not the world's agendas or her liturgies. So let me close with this. Verse 30 to 32 tells us of uh, the sailors trying to escape on lifeboats, right? That's the most logical thing to do. The ship's breaking apart. Let me jump on a boat. What does Paul say? Hey, if you get on there, you'll die. Don't go on the lifeboat. Cut them loose and you will live. 
What's Paul saying? He's saying that, uh, that if don't escape the storm of life down paths that you think are right. right. Don't play the God card. Stay on the ship. The storm may get bad. It might even get worse. You might even end up in the water like they did. But it won't be your end. Don't go on these so-called lifeboats that look appealing to you because you think that you can produce your own salvation. And this reminds me of a story. I remember when the Lord showed me this in Scripture one day. I was, uh, uh, you know, over you know, 10 or so years now, I was, I was applying for uh, Bible college, and God has called me to a certain school in New York. And it's $30,000 USD. And I had 10 Canadian. So like five. Um, and, uh, and I said, well, okay, God, I'll apply. I applied, I got accepted. But I started to apply to other institutions in Ontario so I could get OSAP, which is government funding. And I said, okay, if I can't come up with the money, at least I have these other lifeboats. And I remember God bringing me this. And he said, cut those away. Cut them off. Okay. So I did. I ripped up the acceptance letters. I emailed them saying I won't be coming and I committed to go to this school, and $30,000 came in. I had paid nothing to my first round of schooling. Nothing. God will provide. Trust him. Where are the lifeboats in your life that you're holding on to? Thinking that they're bringing you safety, but they're just causing more destruction. Are you truly cr- trusting Christ, or are you trying to escape? Identify those areas and cut them loose. It won't be easy. Paul still ended up in the water. Your story might be not as grand as mine. I have other more doom and gloom stories, but I thought maybe for once I'll share a good one. So trust in God's word. Trust in his plan. Trust in his promises. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us high and dry. Father, that you don't say, hey, figure it out on your own. I hope you guys make it to heaven one day. But Lord, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that we might have a way to have a life with you, life eternal with the Father. God, may that impact every area of our life. Father, help us to trust your word. Help us to trust your plan and help us to trust your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.